trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I know a lot of people are searching for truth right now, or at least trying to find something plausible to make sense of the world around us because things are getting a little crazier and a little more confusing by the day. I feel it too. And that's why I try to procure the best information I can find, the best writers, the best commentators, the best guests to just shed some light. It's not like these are the answers to all of life's problems, but definitely to, to get you thinking in a more productive way, understanding the world around us, and more importantly, position, positioning yourself to where you can do something about making the world a better place. No, we're not going to fix it all at once. That's big enough. You know, that's, you, you notice even God isn't trying to fix it all at once. So maybe we should take a clue here and focus on uh, let's better our own little corners of this world. Now, I have some great sponsors who make this show possible. It would mean a lot to me if you would do business with them. They include garagedoorproservices.com, lifesavingfood.com, monticellocollege.org, and hslammo.com. So I wish I had more good news to share with you today. It's not a matter of, well, tune in, here's here's the bad news. Eeyore, you want to take this? <laughs> it's, it's more a matter of... There's some some really crazy stuff taking place. Probably best that we acknowledge it or at least recognize here's what's happening. Here is what is likely to uh, affect us in the near future. And here's what we can do about it. So with that in mind, I want to talk a little bit about unity to get things started today. I know that it sounds great and that it's often sold to us as, well, come on now, everybody come together. Let's unite. In fact, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the uh, current occupant of the White House, I believe, upon uh, uh, attaining the presidency. So I didn't say getting elected. <laughs> but I'm sorry. It's just making some more people on the left a little nervous here. But uh, when, when Biden became president, that was one of the first things. I am a uniter, not a divider. And he has certainly tried to bring us together in a lot of ways. Unfortunately, all of them involve compulsion. And see, that's the problem. Unity sounds great right up to the point where somebody's tempted to make it mandatory. Then it becomes a basis for tyranny. And I, I found this article from Gary Gallus. This is from the, uh, the uh, Foundation for Economic Education website. This was actually published back in 2016. So it's even more relevant today because I think the situation has deteriorated a bit since then. But back in February of 2016... Gary Gallus said, hey, forget unity. We need the freedom to disagree. So keeping in mind, he's, still, he's writing about the 2016 election. He says, America will soon approach its biennial peak in unity rhetoric. 2016 offers no shortage of candidates claiming to unify us, unlike their divisive rivals. And once nominees are selected, they'll repeat those claims about themselves and their parties and their opponents. But he says, unfortunately, unity by which he means agreement on the ends we want, is not only absent, but it's unattainable. In fact, he says, our electoral, our electoral process 
demonstrates Americans' disunity. The circular firing squad of attacks on divisive rivals proves that agreement is very limited, even on very broad questions, even within parties. After dividing and conquering their respective party rivals, the nominees will both claim that the other is a divider, providing more proof that they're both correct. And Gary Gallus says, more importantly, once we move beyond the vague and aspirational language expressed in feel-good generalities, it's clear that Americans disagree on almost everything. Not only do our goals differ, they're actually at odds. Now, of course, we all want food, clothing, and shelter, but we want different types and amounts. Further, we don't want them at the same time, in the same place, or for the same persons. We also vary in the trade-offs we're willing to make among what we desire. Once we actually get to the relevant choices, scarcity requires that our conflicts end rather than conform. So the issue is not then implementing the specific ends we agree on, but how to best mutually achieve our different and conflicting ends. And politics, he says, fails in that task. So when people pursue their ends through politics, their success consists in taking others' resources. And since the threat of expropriation can only decrease the incentive to produce, then it creates a negative-sum game. The losers are harmed as well as many of the supposed winners. Unifying political initiatives are just ways to control what people will be forced to do and for whom. Beautifully put. Hamstringing truly cooperative arrangements and squandering the wealth they create. And the greater the diversity of preferences, the more divisive is political determination. Now, he says, there is one thing we can agree on, however, equal, equal freedom to peacefully pursue our own goals. As Lord Acton put it, liberty is the only cause which benefits all alike and provokes no sincere opposition. Because our freedom to choose for ourselves is always the primary means to our ultimate ends. That's why the traditional functions of government are to protect us from abuse by our neighbors and foreign powers. Now, it's also why the greatest threat from government comes from the supposed protectors becoming predators. That's why Acton recognized that liberty requires the limitation of the public authority. Now, Gary Gallus says, despite differences in our personal goals, all individuals gain from the mutual, pers- mutual preservation rather, of their lives, liberties, and estates, as John Locke put it, for our pursuit of happiness in Jefferson's words. Now, this means defending people's personal freedom and property rights, along with the rights to trade and contract. As David Hume noted, quote, The convention for the distinction of property and for the stability of possession is of all circumstances the most necessary to the establishment of human society. After the agreement for the fixing and observing of this rule, there remains little or nothing to be done towards settling a perfect harmony and concord. End quote. So once property rights are established and uniformly defended, all subsequent arrangements are voluntary. No one can impose their will by violating others' rights. And the traditional definition of justice to give each his own is met. Now, Gary Gallus says, because we disagree on our specific ends, when government overrides people's choices instead of protecting them, it imposes domination rather than allowing cooperation and mutual interest. This is why the rhetoric of political unity usually means the imposition of injustice on some to feather others' nests. So grand claims that we are united are actually shorthand for we disagree about many things but are unified against others' preferences. 
and we mean to get our way regardless of their well-being and desires. And he says that kind of unity is actually something very different. Tyranny. I don't know if that hits you the same way that it hits me, but it makes a lot of sense. And I'm not, I, I hope it makes sense when I say I am against the kind of unity that is being preached to us today. The kind of we're all in this together unity. Everybody shut up and do what you're told. That's not unity. And I believe truly powerful things happen when people come together in, in such a way they, they, See something that matters so much. I know we just celebrated the 21st anniversary of uh, 9-11 yesterday. And I remember what it was like in those days following September 11th of 2001. And there was still disagreement, but the disagreement seemed to be put into a little bit different perspective. You saw a lot of people set aside their differences and actually come together because they could agree Whatever differences we have, here's what really matters. And I think that's something that's worth working toward. But you notice, that's something that happens on a voluntary basis. There was no presidential proclamation. Everyone will come out and stand outside their homes and have a moment of silence or put up a flag or whatever. No. People came together voluntarily. They looked for ways to help each other but it was freely chosen. And to me, that's the essential part. People gave their consent. They willingly set aside their differences. They unified because they chose to, and it was organic. And and while it was very short-lived, it was good. I wonder when we're going to reach another one of those moments. And I, I don't know what the answer is. I do believe that we will probably see some challenging stuff. Look, just based on what I see coming, the energy crisis right now in Europe is probably a good place to start. But I think we are going to see circumstances that are going to be so overwhelming, perhaps natural disasters, things like this, that we are going to see a point where people will once again be willing to set aside those differences and focus on the things where they can come together and speak with one voice and, and when I say that, I mean, you know, they probably are speaking in prayer to God with one voice. I don't know what it would take to bring us all together, you know, to where we recognized, okay, we have a lot in common. Maybe we should, maybe we should try to, to cooperate. We should choose to cooperate. Nonetheless, we'll take a quick break and be right back. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, thanks for joining us today. Among my sponsors, you will find GarageDoorProServices.com. And if you are fortunate enough to live in the southwest corner of Utah, St. George, Cedar City, Mesquite, Colorado City, yep, you are covered when it comes to installation, service, and repair of garage doors, be it for residential or for commercial purposes. Garage Door Pro Services, these are the folks you want to talk to. You can call them at 435-525-2773. Go to their website, garagedoorproservices.com. Please, when you talk to them, mention that you are, you know, doing business with them because they are a sponsor of this program. It would mean a lot for me to know that uh, this advertising message reached your ears and that you in turn let the advertisers know 
that you heard it. So I want to spend a little bit more time on unity. And I, and I, I understand I'm, I'm pushing towards kind of an uncomfortable place because we've all been taught, hey, united we stand. And this is, this is how we do. We all come together and, and we, we make this all work. But if there is forced or mandatory unity, you're not dealing with something that is good and noble and, wow, look at this groundswell of support. That's what tyranny looks like. And unity can be co-opted and used against us. In fact, I want to share with you, this is, I've shared this before, but this one is worth dusting off. This is also from 2016, and it was an article by Paul Rosenberg, United We Fall. Now, I admit, the first time I saw this article, it kind of shook me a little bit because he, he ran headlong into a, what, what I considered, you know, a cherished belief. Well, of course, united we stand. And Paul Rosenberg took that to part in pretty short order. So I don't know how it'll affect you, but I want to bounce this off you and just see what you think. Paul Rosenberg says, like you, I've heard united we stand, divided we fall hundreds of times, probably thousands. In fact, we've heard it so many times by now that it triggers emotions in us. Altogether, we can't be stopped, and so on. Except that it's mainly a trap. He says, unity is the downward path the road to decline. In fact, being united has very little value and has value rather in very few areas of life. Now, if you want a mass of bodies to charge another mass of bodies on the other side of a battlefield, okay, then unity matters. But when you want honesty, intelligence, compassion, innovation, and evolution, unity is your enemy. Unity works for body power, but it works against all the higher and better aspects of our nature. And he says, to be blunt, that's why the sacrifice collectors of mankind love unity. They want obedient bodies, not self-determinant minds. And he says, the real pernicious thing about unity is that it's sold as some kind of spiritual ideal. We each sacrifice ourselves, then we somehow become magical collective superheroes. But again, this is false. The high and good, the truly spiritual, forms only in individuals. In fact, he says, as I'll illustrate below, the more united our minds are, the farther they sink to an animal level. The more individual our minds are, the more they rise toward the good and the ultimate. So Paul Rosenberg is saying, unity in the religious sense is a spiritualized dream of a free fix. By embracing unity, people hope to solve their personal deficits by magic. Unification calls the magic down from heaven, and boom, we're all fixed. No work required. It's spiritual, after all. But he says, the truth is this. Where individuality has had the upper hand, prosperity, growth, and invention have defined the times. On the other hand, when collective ideals like melting into one have had the upper hand, humanity has sunk toward an animal level of existence. So if you'd like some proof, he says, okay, let's start with this. Every mass tragedy since 1900 has not only featured unity, but has been built with unity as its central component. In fact, this becomes utterly obvious with the use of just one word, collectivism. Collectivism is unity by definition, and it stood at the heart of Mao's China, Lenin and Stalin's USSR, Pol Pot's Cambodia, and the various Kim's North Korea. As a first approximation, he says, these unity traps killed 100 million people. 
Then we can add Hitler and Mussolini, who enforced unity. Nonconformists were imprisoned or killed. And we have tens of millions more dead here. So this fact hasn't been lost on observers. In fact, here's a couple of quotes to kind of drive this home. Gustav Le Bon said, An individual immersed for some length of time in a crowd soon finds himself either in consequence of magnetic influence given out by the crowd or from some other cause of which we're ignorant in a special state which much resembles the state of fascination in which the hypnotized individual finds himself in the hands of the hypnotizer. Again, that's Gustave Le Bon. Charles Chaplin, yeah, Charlie Chaplin said, man as an individual is a genius, but men in the mass form a headless monster, a great brutish idiot that goes where prodded. And yes, Paul Rosenberg says, our abusers know this too. Here's a quote from Edward Bernays, who made a living teaching people to manipulate the masses. Bernays said, quote, The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. And he says, Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. End quote. So you still want some more proof? Okay, Paul Rosenberg says, here are some thoughts from people who knew something about creativity, discovery, and creating a better world. Albert Einstein, for instance, said, everything that is really great and inspiring is created by the individual who can labor in freedom. Albert Schweitzer said, civilization can only revive when there shall come into being a number of individuals, a new tone of mind independent of the one prevalent among the crowd and in opposition to it. The ethical comes into existence only in individuals. And finally, John Steinbeck. This I believe, that the free exploring mind of the individual human is the most valuable thing in the world. End quote. So every leader of a movement, or wannabe leader of a movement, stresses the necessity of numbers. Every one of us needs to show up and make them take notice. So he says, I hate, I hate to tell you this, but that's a fatal error. It's wonderful for the wannabe leader. He gets to be the great one, but it ends up destroying his followers. When you have a mass movement following a noble leadership, individual level virtues are squeezed out and actual improvement along with it. And here's why. Listening to the leader displaces self-judgment. Following the leader displaces self-motivation. Lauding the leader or the courage of the leader displaces your own courage to act alone. Quoting the words of the leader displaces self-responsibility. So if you want real, enduring progress in the world, Paul Rosenberg says we must each make our own decisions. We must each take full responsibility for our lives and we must each muster the courage to act alone. Until we can do that, we won't move the world forward by any appreciable amount. But his point here is that mass movements and leaders always drag us in the wrong direction. So if you want a pile of bodies to knock down other bodies, unity's your tickets, your ticket rather. But if you want a large number of people to turn off their minds and obey you, unity is also your ticket, especially if you mix in some fear. But if you want thinking, creative, upright, beneficial human beings, he says, ditch unity and call for self-will. As individuals rise, we rise, rather, 
united we fall. Now, hopefully that doesn't, you know, bring confusion or a sense of, oh boy, this is just, you know, being contrary for the sake of being contrary. I really think Paul Rosenberg has a solid bit of advice here. And there's that added problem of when we get in the crowd, or at least we feel that we're running with the crowd, there's that that sense of safety. Well, you know, if the crowd's doing it, it must be okay. Sometimes that makes it easier to switch off our conscience and support or do things that we normally wouldn't do. Just a little food for thought. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I do appreciate you uh, being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. And I would ask you this simple favor. If you find value in this or if you find that uh, there's something worthwhile, please tell a friend. I, I'll be the first to admit this is not a program for everybody. Some people are like, ah, it's a bit much. Nah, it's a little, little too... Uh, a little too focused on stuff that uh, makes me uncomfortable. I totally get that. And if, if I'm not your guy, I'm not going to be offended. But I also know there are people out there who are really looking for truth at a, at a slightly deeper level than just, uh, let's talk about what's happening in politics today. That's why programs like this one persist. I think we live in very serious times, and I think that they are becoming more serious at, you know, as we go But I also believe that there's purpose behind the fact that you and I are aware of what's going on. And and I think in many cases, I'll just speak for myself, but I think a lot of us feel a calling. I know I do. I feel a personal calling to speak up and try to be a voice for what's good, what's right, what's worth preserving. And, you know, you can tell you're doing the job right when you're getting serious opposition. If someone is attacking you, that's a pretty good chance that uh, you're probably on the right path, or at least you're over the target, right? That's why you're taking flack. So I'm, I'm going to risk stepping on some toes when I say this, especially this close to having celebrated, you know, 9-11. But if I tell you that the days in which America was truly an exceptional nation have passed, is your first reaction going to be anger, disbelief? What do you mean? What's that supposed to mean? What do you mean we're not an exceptional nation? Now, I'm not talking about, well, that's why we need to hang our heads in shame. But let me give you an explanation why I think America's exceptionalism has has passed. The days in which we were truly exceptional compared to other nations, um, they've come and gone. And it took place very slowly, but consistently right under our noses for the better part of the last 200 years. The ideas and the principles that once differentiated between America and the rest of the world have almost all been discarded in favor of becoming more like other developed nations. And just so we're clear on definitions, in order for someone or something to be legitimately exceptional, they can't be just like everything or everyone else. So America once stood, for instance, as a beacon to other nations with her commitment to limited government that existed to guarantee individual rights, to guarantee independence and free markets and private property. In other words, 
It was a haven for those who wished to breathe free. And that's what made us exceptional compared to other nature, to other natures, nations rather. But true exceptionalism existed for a relatively short time before power seekers and opportunists jumped up and tried to do away with it. So how did that happen? Well, if you want to transform a remarkably unique nation into something indistinguishable from other nations, basically all you have to do is uh, embrace the same kind of policies. For instance, the Dutch and the Brits created central banking. And the U.S. followed right along. The French are the ones who came up with the will of the people being embodied in national assemblies. And the U.S. followed right along. The Germans created social welfare. The U.S. followed right along. They tax income. Well, we tax income. They regulate private commerce. We regulate private commerce. They claim control of communications. The U.S. government claims control of communications. They built massive armies and conducted foreign wars. Well, the U.S. did the same and now exceeds them all. So when we hear talk of American exceptionalism today, almost always you will hear it in the context of justifying some interventionist government policy abroad or something more authoritarian taking place at home. Now, once our personal sovereignty uh, limited government to the role of a servant, right? Its job was to protect our rights. But now government forcefully claims the prerogative to rule our lives from start to finish. So if that's the painful truth right there. That's our decline from exceptional to uniform among the nations. And I know that's going to rile some people up a little bit, but, you know, as long as we can militarily dominate other places on earth, we're still number one. But sometimes I wonder if we forget that dominion and power weren't really what made America exceptional in the beginning. In fact, President John Quincy Adams once explained the national risk in becoming a vanquisher of monsters abroad rather than just a defender of the American people and their rights. Here's how he put it. He said the fundamental maxims of her policy would insensibly change from liberty to force. The frontlet upon her brows would no longer beam with the ineffable splendor of freedom and independence, but in its stead would soon be substituted an imperial diadem, flashing in false and tarnished luster the murky radiance of dominion and power. She might become the dictatress of the world. She would no longer be the ruler of her own spirit. Now that's exactly what has happened to America and exactly why our national exceptionalism has ended. And just because this is a hard truth, and acknowledging that, that that doesn't mean that we hate America, and it doesn't mean we've given up the fight to reclaim what's best about America. But it does mean that we have grown beyond the platitudes that our leaders spout, especially during election years, to convince us that our national character is sound when we know that it's not. And it also spells opportunity for each one of us to give real meaning to the word exceptionalism once again but on an individual level. And I really believe this is the answer. The more I listen to people who I think have a clue about what's going on, that is one of the common things that they say is, we have to step up as individuals if we want to make any kind of a positive, measurable distance difference rather in the world. But we have to be willing to be different 
for the right reasons. I don't know if you are familiar with uh, leadership guru Chris Brady. I picked up a book of his a few years ago called Rascal, which was one of the most refreshing affirmations of the power of personal exceptionalism to bring about positive change in the world. And, and, and Brady invites his readers to become different by becoming an, an original character, to become a rascal. Now, that's not a call to just embrace some kind of hedonistic nonconformity. I do what I want, man, because I'm a rascal. It's more of an invitation to break with the expectations of others and to find the courage to choose a life path that is as individual as each one of us. Now, that sounds easy, right? Well, I'll just live and walk my own individual path, but it takes guts to do this. You have to be willing to break with convention, just like the founding generation of Americans did. Back when they claimed, uh, hey, our rights are beyond the reach of the king and his parliament. So like them, you will be called crazy and a lot of other names for failing to conform should you choose to become a modern rascal. But see, being a modern rascal is, is, again, it's not just about being a troublemaker. It's about being a rebel with a cause. Not about being different just to be different. It's about choosing to be different in order to make a difference. As Chris Brady puts it, rascals are the great amplifiers of the principles that allow people to be free. I just, I have to kind of chuckle because I'm thinking about, there was, there was a huge uh, pride festival that took place in Boise over the weekend. And, uh, you know, in, in any public setting, but particularly where there's parades and things like that, you'll see a lot of people trying to be different, just, you know, for the sake of being different, expressing their individuality by looking exactly like everybody else. Oh, look, I'm wearing, I'm wearing the ribbon. <laughs> you know, my hair's bright pink too. Hey, you know, I look just exactly like everybody else who is being an absolute individual. This is tapping into something a little bit uh, deeper than group identity. This is about tapping into who you are as an individual, but more importantly, what can you do that nobody else can do? And I think you understand. I mean that not in the sense of, hey, what makes you better than everybody else? I'm asking, what makes you unique? What's the unique way that you can contribute to the world? And I can't answer it for you. And I know people who find themselves very frustrated because they're trying to figure this out and have been working on it for years, maybe their whole lives. All I can tell you is it's different for each person. But it sure makes a difference when you start to live your life with a sense of purpose. And particularly, if you're a believer, if you believe, well, you know, God is a part of my life. And if I, can, if I ask God, will you show me what, what I could be doing with your help? You'll be amazed at the doors that will open and the opportunities that you'll have to change the world in the right ways. And for some reason, it just, uh, it just comes together all the better when you realize that you're, uh, you're actually working in concert with your creator. Got to take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. And welcome back to the show. By the way, if I sound like I'm talking through my nose, it's true, I totally am. We have had uh, a number of wildfires going on around here. And the air quality, well, let's just say it's not real good. I don't think I can, I can't remember a time in my life where I have sneezed or blown my nose more than this last few days with all the smoke in the air. It is it is utterly miserable. But if you can bear with me sounding like I've got a problem with my adenoids, please hang with me. Got some, actually, a couple really important stories to share. I wish this was better news. I, you don't know how much I wish I could just tell you, hey, by the way, everything worked out, and it's all, everything's gone back to normal, and the life that we enjoyed prior to uh, 2020, you know, is is rapidly returning. Not the case, though. Things are complicated. They are getting more complicated by the minute. And I'm going to share a couple of quick uh, articles with you. In fact, I'm going to start. To, this is kind of the worst case scenario. But uh, Jeffrey Tucker, writing for Brownstone Institute, a world on fire. You want a real, honest to goodness, no crap assessment of what's going on? This is one of the best ones you're going to hear. Jeffrey Tucker says, every day, news reporters, traders, and workers of all sorts over the world do their, they wake to do their work as they always have. And part of this requires that everyone pretend that life is normal, fixable, and more or less stable. But he says all of this is temporarily, temporary rather. It will come and go and not really be that bad. Strange, isn't it? Human beings have a hard time adjusting to disaster in their decision-making and even in their mindset. Reporters have to do their jobs as they are trained. Traders too. Everyone does. They please their bosses, they don't sound alarms, they don't scream and yell as they probably should, but there is a moment in the day when the work is done, and perhaps a cocktail comes out, or the dishes are washed, and the kids are in bed, and the room falls silent. At this moment, millions and billions of people the world over know it. Disaster is all around us. We're just pretending otherwise, simply because this is what we have to do. Now, he says it was this way during lockdowns. They know what they are doing. Otherwise, why would we be forced to do this? If we all do our part, maybe this will end sooner than later. The experts surely must know better than we do what's what. What can we do but trust? Jeffrey Tucker says, let us adjust and find a way to normalize all of this in our minds. We're powerless to change it in any case. And thus, the peoples of the world adjusted and will continue to do so even as the fundamentals decay and rot. Long past the end of lockdowns and most vaccine mandates, even as all the old rituals and signals of life as we once knew it fade further into memory. But he says, enough with the dreary existentialism. Let's talk about life in a one-bedroom apartment in London. The price of energy for heat has nearly doubled, seemingly overnight. Truly, it took months, but it has felt like one day to the next. The energy bills will be approaching a substantial portion of the rent itself. And the forecast, which one has to do because that's how energy markets work on the consumer end, is showing a doubling and doubling again. In fact, he includes a chart and says, here's what Goldman Sachs is seeing. Small businesses cannot function under these conditions. 
Tom Carriage, the celebrity chef, revealed that the annual energy bill at his pub has soared from $60,000 annually to $420,000 and warned that ludicrous price rises left the hospitality sector facing a terrifying landscape. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says this is all running wildly ahead of consumer prices generally, but this is only through June. And here's another chart showing that we are approaching 100% inflation in energy. So what does that mean? Well, he says many will need to close up shop. The new prime minister in the UK, Liz Truss, who calls herself a conservative, has capped price increases for consumers while pushing the largest spending bill to bail out energy companies ever. It truly seems like she had no choice. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, yes, that's what they all say. But in this case, it might simply be true because otherwise the entire nation would totally fall apart. And it could happen anyway. Joseph Sternberg says the UK may be facing a wave of business bankruptcies exceeding anything witnessed during the post-2008 panic and recession. Some 100,000 firms could be forced into insolvency in coming months. Bankruptcy consultant Red Flag Alert warned this week. Now, these are otherwise healthy firms with at least a million dollars or a million pounds, rather, in annual revenue. Business failures on this scale would dwarf the roughly 65,000 firms of any size, any size that went under 2008 to 2010. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says everyone wants to know why. And as always, there are a, n- a number of factors. The sanctions on Russia for its struggle over the borders of Ukraine were ill-advised. They never stopped the deployment of such tactics. Sanctions against Cuba still in force. They began 60 years ago, all in an effort to make some foreign state behave in a way that the U.S. demands. They've driven up the price of energy all over Europe and the U.K., but even then, Russian sources only about 3% of the, 3% of the U.K.'s energy needs. Another culprit is the fanatical attempt on the part of government to convert a fossil fuel economy to one powered by wind and sun. For reasons of climate change, we know how good politicians are at controlling the global climate by taking away your consumer conveniences. But really, Jeffrey Tucker says even these two factors wouldn't be enough to cause this level of carnage. The real root of the problem is monetary, which in turn traces to lockdown policies, the wild currency debasement starting in March 2020, and continuing through lockdowns. And how that's wrecked the place. How could they not see this coming, he asks. It's ridiculous. And it happened the world over. In fact, the chart that he shares next, he says, this chart looks messy, but it tells the whole story of how one generation of central bankers wrecked the world. The key on the left tells you monetary inflation rates, and the key on the right tells you price inflation rates. One lags the other by 16 to 18 months. In fact, he color codes it so you can see the relationships. This covers the U.S., which is in green, the EU, which is in red, and the U.K., which is in blue. And when you look at the chart, he says, you can see the massive oceans of paper being pumped out to cover up for the egregious evil of lockdowns. Do you remember those days when governments the world over imagined they could somehow shut things down by keeping the data while keeping the data looking pretty with the printing press? And yet how quickly things fall apart. He says, my friends in the UK are truly panicked. They want to come to the US just to get away. 
but many of my friends are rebels and did not accept the vaccines because they're healthy and under the age of 80. They rejected the jab. Now they cannot come to the U.S. because the U.S. is still imposing rules forbidding travelers from foreign countries who are not vaccinated from getting across the borders. Now he says these policies again trace to the lockdown era, March 12th, 2020 in particular, when the office of the president decided to, on its own to do the unthinkable and shut travel from Europe, UK, Australia, and New Zealand down. That caused family disruption, business loss, and tragedy all around, and it's still not normalized. Which makes the point, no one in Washington has any regrets. This is the essence of, of policy in America today. Truly, people are being locked out of our country for being insufficiently loyal to Pfizer, which seems to be the real government here at home, at least as it pertains to public health. And the most striking feature of that which affects the UK today is the sheer speed of it all. One day life was normal, and then suddenly the bills were through the roof. No one could explain why. It was some kind of mystery and extremely disorienting. Why energy, for example? Well, inflation strikes in strange ways. It gravitates to the thing most vulnerable to price hikes. That could be dictated by fashion or policy or both. But when it happens, no power can stop it. The story of going from normal to double and triple prices, forecasting to go much higher. Jeffrey Tucker says it reminds me of books I've read about the Weimar. How things were fine until suddenly they weren't, and life itself took a shocking turn. He says, until recently, Americans have looked at the chaos abroad and thought, oh, that's what these weird foreign people do. Just strange stuff with unstable governments and unsound financial systems. And yet, right now, it's happening to our mirror country across the pond, a place that Americans think of as cousins with a royal family. And the remarkable thing is that the UK's monetary policy was not as bad as the U.S.'s own. The difference here is that there's a larger international market for dollars than for pounds. So this allows the Fed a little bit of breaking room to do more damage. The question is, can it happen here? And the answer is yes, certainly. And it could happen before year's end. The policies of the last three years have created an incredible powder keg and no one knows when it will go off. No one wants, knows what to do when it happens. Basically, he's telling us the world is on fire. But most people aren't willing to think about it or talk about it just yet. This is The Brian Hyde Show.